in our mission, our mini-series on the mission of our church. And we are going to be finishing that series out this morning, jumping back into the book of Acts. We like to go verse by verse through books of the Bible here, but every once in a while it's good to deviate from that so that we can look at truths that are important to our body. So we are going to be finishing Luke chapter 10 this morning. And I'm curious, as I prepare to dig into our text, how many of you, this isn't to put anybody on the spot, just curious what I'm working with here, have ever heard the term, or even go so far as to say you know what the terms hermeneutics and exegesis mean? All right. So we've got about a, we got about a 50% swath here of the people that raised their hands. I'm not trying to put anybody on the spot. They're not words that you hear in day-to-day life. That's why I'm asking. And I never want to assume that just because you're sitting in a church that you know churchy lingo. Um, when we make those assumptions, it really leads to insider language being used in the church, which alienates the church from those who would come in and seek to hear what the message of the church really is. And some people combat that by saying, we're just not going to use words that can intimidate people. Well, I have to be honest. I actually find that approach to be more offensive than using words that might intimidate people because what that is is a presumption on your intelligence. And I don't presume that coming up here. I presume that each of you sitting out there is more intelligent than me delivering the message. So you are fully capable of being able to use and digest big words. You might just need to know them in their context so that you can use them if you're not familiar with them. So. Really, what it comes down to when you use words that people are not familiar with, if there's not an understanding, it's not a poor job by the student. It's a poor job by the teacher. So the responsibility lies on the teacher here. Hermeneutics is simply the art and the science of studying the Bible. And exegesis refers to the interpretive process that we use in trying to rightly understand the Word of God. And both are critical because we maintain that this book that you're using this morning are the words of God, very God. So we want to seek to use interpretive skills that are accurate, but not just accurate. We want them to be reproducible. We want you to be able to go home and not say, wow, he got things out of that text that I'll never be able to get. If that's your conclusion here, I failed you. What I'm supposed to do is walk you through so that you can say, wow, I understand my Bible. And I could reproduce getting that out of my Bible in my own devotional time. So this text is really just one of the more fascinating hermeneutical texts in the Bible because of one simple little thing that almost all commentators seem to miss. The lawyer who approached Jesus in verse 25 that we looked at two weeks ago asked Jesus a question. What's the greatest commandment? And there's two answers to that question. There isn't just one answer. They're put on a line together. If you diagram the sentence, it would be a compound subject separated with an and, but making two answers, and both are critical to understand. So really, the answers are to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. But this presents a really important problem that seems to go unnoticed. Why would Jesus say that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself, but then only address what it means to love your neighbor? Well, the short answer is he wouldn't. So as we prepare to approach our text, there's some things in here that are supposed to serve as an example of loving the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. 
Just like the parable of the Good Samaritan served as an example of loving your neighbor as yourself. So to follow the exegetical approach of Luke here, there are some things that we see that fit into the story. And um, we're going to look at that here in a second. But there is this hermeneutical approach known as parallelism. If I'm losing you, stick with me here. It's worth it. It's, it, it's fruit that's a little bit higher up on the tree, but sometimes it's worth climbing the tree for the good fruit. Parallelism is used by the majority of biblical authors. So if you're like, ah, this doesn't apply to me, this is just um, theologian stuff, almost every author in the Bible uses what I'm about to talk about. So if you want to understand your Bible, you should understand what the authors of the Bible are using. And not only is it something that's used in the Bible, because we don't look at the Bible and say, well, this is my biblical hermeneutic, and this is the way I interpret other books. You have to be able to interpret like you do any other book for it to be reliable interpretation skills, and parallelism is still used very much today. So when you know parallelism, what it means is somebody says something, and it should be accurately reflected as you go on in the text and make parallel truth assertions. So some things that we learned from the text about the Good Samaritan that we looked at a couple of weeks ago, that if I'm right here in my approach, they should be reflected in our text that we're going to finish out our series with. So a couple of things. It can either be read as an encouragement or a rebuke, depending on where your heart is at in the process as you engage it. It contrasts the example of somebody who is doing the will of God, and it holds them up as a foil against somebody who's not doing the will of God. Jesus expects that we would learn from the person who is doing the will of God and learn from the person who's not doing the will of God and make a beeline straight to the will of God. Jesus expects that we would learn from the person who is doing the will of God and see them as an example of right response in your heart to the gospel. And Jesus intended the story to be an indictment on the religious culture of the day. So with that in mind, I want to ask you a couple of really basic questions, and then we're going to dive in. And if you have an answer to these questions, you're going to see that the text just sort of unfolds itself. The first is, if Jesus seeks to answer the question, who is my neighbor, does he also seek to answer the question, what does it mean to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength? And the second question is, if Jesus used the story in a specific way to illustrate a specific point, can you learn from how he answered the first part of the question to help you understand the second part of the question? And to both of those questions, I would say absolutely he answers both questions. If you don't say that he answers both questions, you're left with a real problem on your hands. What does it mean that Jesus would put a lot of weight on loving your neighbor as yourself, but avoid the question on loving the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the primary issue that we see in theological liberalism that has just run rampant across this country. Without a focus on loving the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, then loving your neighbor as yourself really seems to just kind of erode and fall apart, and eventually it terminates on itself. We love because he first loved us. God knows that because he wrote that. So he would not address the one without the other. And with that foundation in mind, let's pick up our text where we left off last time. God, I pray that you would just empower the preaching of the text by the awesome power of your Holy Spirit and the awesome power of your divine word. Lord, speak to our hearts to convict, to encourage, to admonish, to help us along the way to be lovers and worshipers 
In Jesus' name, amen. So the last, so the text opens with this real story of Jesus moving along to a place, from the place he had the conversation with the lawyer and going to the house of a friend. Look at verse 38. It says, Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who was at the Lord's feet and listening and teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. But the Lord answered, Martha, Martha, you're anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary, and Mary had chosen the good portion, which will not be taken from her. So Jesus leaves the scene that was started back in verse 25, and he's on the move. And we rarely think about Jesus' humanity, but he did need basic things like food and shelter and friendship because he was just as human as you and I in his humanity. So he goes over to a friend's house to go and have a meal and have some rest. And as you look through this text, anybody, can anybody hear, uh, I want to hear your guys' hermeneutical skills. Anybody find a repeated word in that text? Anybody? Not Martha, Martha. He repeated it. <laughs> yes, he did repeat that one. You guys are too sharp. It's a little word. What? But, who said, was that you? Yes. All right, you win the gold star, so make sure you meet me afterwards. But is repeated three times in five verses. The term but in Greek, alos, it's called a contrasting conjunction. It's the strongest contrasting conjunction in the Greek language, and it's used all three times in the Greek, not just in the English. And what it's meant to do is to contrast two or more things, to pit them against each other. It's, kind of the, it's the word that's used in Ephesians chapter 2. You were dead in your transgressions as you walked according to the prince of the power of the air. Alos! But God being rich in mercy has made you alive together with Christ Jesus. By grace you've been saved. So it's pitting the fate of walking according to the flesh, but we've now been awakened to the spirit. And that's the same word that's being used here. And in this text, it's meant to contrast Mary and Martha. And when you add the terms and and now, you actually have six conjunctions in five verses. So the conclusion either has to be that the Holy Spirit is really poor at grammar and writes run-on sentences, which I don't think is the conclusion that any of us want to come to, right? Or he did it on purpose because he wanted to make a point. And he's strongly contrasting two people to contrast two postures of worship. So as I said earlier, a lot on how we read this text comes from what went before it because the Holy Spirit uses parallelism. It can either be read as an encouragement or a rebuke, depending on where your heart is at. When you read this, if you are in a place of worship, you could be strongly encouraged by this text. If you're in a place with busyness run amok, then you probably read this more as a rebuke. And it's pretty interesting because the Holy Spirit doesn't really write it like a rebuke. He lets the Spirit make the application to your hearts. So a lot of that's going to be depending on the presuppositions that you bring to the text. Also, it contrasts an example of somebody who is doing the will of God and someone who isn't. So you have to ask yourself as you come to the text, who is doing the will of God in this text? Who isn't? Just like in the story of the Good Samaritan, right? And what's the difference between these parties? The story actually consists of somebody who thought that they were doing the will of God, but they were not. And others who thought that the people who were doing the will of God really weren't, even though they actually were. So in the first part of the text, you see the lawyer, you see the scribe, you see the priest who thought that they were actually doing the will of God, don't they? 
in verses 27 through 37. They certainly wouldn't think that a Samaritan would be the example of the person who is doing the will of God. Yet it ends up that the Samaritan is doing the will of God, and those people who were busy doing religion in the name of Yahweh were not doing the will of God. And similarly in this text, the busy religious person is off base, and the person that they would seek to indict actually is doing the will of God. See what I mean about parallelism and being unmistakable? You can't make these two passages line up. I couldn't do that. I'm not intelligent enough, so I'm not making this stuff up. It's really there. Also, like I said earlier in the intro, Jesus expects that we would learn from the person who's doing the will of God and repeat their actions and their heart that led them to it. He's using these two people side by side to give a pictorial portrait of what the heart of God really looks like. Not just to call out people who fell short and put them on blast. That's not what Jesus is doing. He wants us to learn from the examples in this text. Jesus expects that we would learn from the person who is doing the will of God and see them as an example of right response to the gospel. Also, Jesus intends for this story to really be an indictment on the religious culture of the day. It was pretty obvious in the Good Samaritan parable, wasn't it? I mean, you have the religious elite, and they're walking along the road to Jericho, and Jesus holds up these religious elite, and he says, these are not examples of the one who did the will of God. So it's obvious in the first part, but people miss the connection to it in the second part. But when you realize these texts are connected that conclusion is pretty obvious as well. So just like the characters in the story of the Good Samaritan stand for something, the characters in this story, though it's not a parable and it's a really real story, it just shows the genius of the Holy Spirit that he could use a real story as a parable. Meaning he can do whatever he wants. Because to quote Daniel, he's God. And he can do that. So both of them take aim at the busy, worshipless religion of the day that does a bunch of stuff and misses the heart of God. Hear that again. Both texts, that's the the connection point. Both of them take aim at the busy, worshipless religion of the day that does a bunch of stuff in the name of Jesus but misses the heart of God. That's the whole point of the mashup of these two passages. So let's just look at the spirit who contrasted these two people to show their different hearts. Let's lean into this and see what he has for us to learn. And we'll start with Martha, since the text does as well. So as it begins, it starts off sweet enough, doesn't it? I mean, you have Jesus. He's walking into a house in verse 38. says he entered a village. And Martha welcomed him into her house. Nothing wrong there. So in verse 38, we have not gone off the rails yet. Jesus is hungry. He comes and looks for a place to crash. Martha welcomes him into her home. She starts off by making a meal for Jesus and his disciples. There's nothing wrong here. The first indicator that something might be going wrong is verse 39, where it seems to just bring up abruptly as a foil against Mary, or Martha, it brings up Mary sitting there at the feet of Jesus, and then it seems to be contrasting these two postures. Martha goes from serving Jesus to somehow getting off track in what she's doing. That ever happened to anybody? I'm going to make some application at the end, but might as well just lean into it and make some application along the way. Ever happen to someone where you serve, start off serving Jesus without noticing it begins to go off the rails somewhere? You don't even know how you got there. I mean, you, you've, I've met so many people in this walk with Jesus where I sit with them and they say, I, I have no clue how I've gotten to this place. 
30 years I've been serving the king, and I've been devoting my life to the service of the king, and now as I assess my life, I don't even know where the sweetness of Jesus is manifested anywhere. Any, ever happen to anyone? You don't need to raise your hands, but you don't even know how you could have possibly got there as you begin some honest self-assessment. You think that you're still serving Jesus, but you start drifting away from the feet of Jesus, and you get a foul attitude in the process. And I've just got to be real with you, man. I've sat with way too many mature quotes around that term. Christians who have such an attitude in their pursuit of Christ. And I can't help but think if that's the picture of maturity, I don't want it. Why would I ever want to have rigid, rigid religion? That's a hard thing to say. Rigid, rigid religion? Um, why, why would I look for that? Why would I want to devote my life to this person of Jesus only to be older, crustier, angrier and see Jesus more distant and far away as a result? And at that time, you realize that you're no longer serving Jesus, but get this, this is important. This might be somebody's most important takeaway this morning. You're actually in love with the idea of serving Jesus, which is very, very different than serving Jesus, brothers and sisters. And it can be a dark, dark Place. When we take Jesus out of the center of our servitude, it gets really cold and it sears the soul. That's, that's just a guarantee. If you've ever been there, you know it. I've sat with pastors, my new job for our church planning network, I don't want this job, it's a heavy calling, is to sit with the pastors that have made shipwreck of their soul, according to 2 Timothy chapter 1, and to just say, how did you get here? And just listen to them and draw them out and say, let me help you just make a beeline back to the sweetness at the feet of Jesus. Like I said, when you take Jesus out of the center of our servitude, it really becomes a dark place that sears the soul. And I don't want to speculate here. For some reason, that seems to be the hermeneutical approach that most people take when they get to Luke chapter 10. It's like, let's just do slow, careful exegesis. But then when we get to this text, let's just speculate what Martha's deal was, right? There's a best-selling book called Having a Merry Heart in a Martha World. I'm not trying to diss it if you guys have read it and you liked it, but I couldn't help but wonder, how did they get 233 pages out of these five verses in Luke chapter 10? Like, man, I'm going to be struggling to get to the end of a 35-minute sermon without going into speculation. How do you get 233 pages out of that? We don't need to speculate, guys. There, there's enough going on right here in this text that's just dripping with application. So the issue is that she gets so hyper-focused on what she's doing for Jesus that she misses the person of Jesus. And the result is that she's worried and bothered, Jesus' words here, about so many things rather than being in the Spirit. And the ultimate result is just frustrated, fleshy spirit that fails to recognize the importance of being with Jesus because of hyper-prioritizing the need to do for Jesus. Again, get that. It's this fleshy spirit that fails to recognize the importance of being with Jesus because she's lost in this world of doing for Jesus. And she seems to follow the trajectory of a well-known passage found elsewhere. You can turn there if you like. I'm just going to be there for a minute. Revelation chapter 2, where it talks about this church of Ephesus. And it says, I know your works. There's a lot of good ones. You've tried the apostles or the people that claim that they're apostles and they are not. You know better than that. You know your Bibles. You know your doctrine. 
You're grounded in theology. You were able to show that these people should not be listened to. I know your toil, he goes on to say. I know your labor. And then he even adds that. He goes deeper in the next verse. He says, I know your perseverance, that you have persevered to the persecution that comes to this church. But then, again, alos is used there, the contrasting conjunction. He says, but I have this against you. You've left the love you had at first. So therefore, repent and do the deeds you did at first. Otherwise, I'm going to come and I'm going to take your lampstand and remove it. The similarities are striking between those two passages. There's a commendation on something that's good and helpful and beautiful. Just like Martha opens up her home and begins serving Jesus, the church of Ephesus open up their hearts to the word of God. They know the word of God. They're able to try the word of God. They're able to try those who claim that they're teaching the word of God and say that they're off base. But that good and helplessness has run amok and has actually become the point of contention that becomes their very Achilles heel. And with both of them, Jesus tells very busy people, hey, wake up, refocus on worship, refocus on the main thing. There is a main thing that's the main, main thing, and the very heart of it is being at the feet of Jesus, and that will not be taken away. So some things that this means for our body. I'm far more concerned about your posture of worship than the amount of programming that we run in this building during the week. This is a vision and mission meeting, guys. I'm going to start setting the vision and mission with this. I am far more concerned about your posture of worship than the busyness that we can run in this building for programming during the week. And you have to hear that because not enough people say one plus one doesn't equal two. Programming does not equal intimacy with Christ. The emperor has no clothes on in that system. Somebody needs to point it out and say, for all of your busy systems, where are disciples being made and where is the feet of Jesus being prioritized in this? I never want to lose that necessary place that Jesus has called us to. Amen? Are we in agreement on that? Can I get, can I get an actual amen where you guys are in agreement with that? Thank you. Um, I'd rather see us have less stuff but be cultivating more worship. I hope you guys are in agreement with that. Less stuff, but cultivating a heart of worship. And guess what? I get to have the ultimate trump card. Jesus agrees with me on this one. So if you're like, ah, I don't know, that's pretty foul. Well, guess what? Guess who your issue's with? It ain't me. So that might mean, check this out. I want everybody to hear me. I want to be able to, all eyes up here, because I'm going to hold you to this. That might mean that we have to say no to some things in order to say yes to the right thing. Which is really fascinating, because if you look at the theology of the word no, people are theoretically into the word no. They're like, yes! You could, if I asked you for an amen, you guys would all amen me on that, right? Like, we need to say no so we could say yes to Jesus. You all be like, amen! Until you bring something, and I'm like, no. And you're like, man, pastor's foul. <laughs> That's the way it goes, right? You theoretically get down with the word no until you want to do something, and then you're told no. So why are you saying no to that? That's a good thing. There's a lot of good things. Guess what? Serving Jesus and making him a sandwich was a good thing, but her heart still got foul in the process. So this passage is really just Jesus giving us the license to use the word no, and he's saying, I will continue to say no to your busyness, and I'm not going to roll with your busyness if it gets in the way of worship. And that's going to be our philosophy of ministry here, folks, because it's the philosophy of ministry that Jesus held 
to. And that's why the series is called Letting Jesus Define Redeemer's Mission. So just to make sure that my point is understood correctly, I want to point out something really critical. When we talk about overly busy Christianity, please, please get this. Because, man, I've been preaching this message for years now, and there's always somebody that walks out with this misunderstanding. So I'm going to cut you off at the knees so that if you do misunderstand me, that's on you and that's not on me. When we talk about overly busy Christianity, the opposite of busy is unbusy, not unengaged. Hear me on that. The opposite of busy is unbusy, not unengaged. I don't even want to bring this up because I'm usually fine with passages being left to hang intention in the balance. But I have to bring this up because of seeing what has happened of preaching this message for years and years. Somebody who's burned out in their context of serving ends up hearing this message and they come up and talk to me about their experience of burnout and how healing it is to hear a message like this that prioritizes the person and the posture of the place at the feet of Jesus, and it's freeing and liberating when somebody reminds you that that's what Christianity is really supposed to be all about, that it's supposed to be about worshiping Jesus rather than being busy for Jesus to the point where you don't even have time to be with Jesus. That's liberating, isn't it? But what I've seen is that many people end up combating their busyness with a massive, massive pendulum swing that takes them to the other place, so then they just become slothful as if that's what Christ meant when he said, come and sit at my feet because it's a necessary place. Look, if your response to over-busyness in the name of Jesus is slothful Christianity, then you've missed the point, and your repentance is just as fleshy as what drove you to the need of repentance to begin with, which is why George Whitfield said in 1741, even my repentance needs repenting of, because it can still just be mired in the flesh, can it? So where would we get the idea that choosing the necessary place means becoming completely unengaged, and saying, oh yeah, I used to give all my time to the church, but now I give all my time to myself because that's what repentance really looks like. It's just, I'm going to do me from now on. And I'm just not going to give myself or my service to the local church because I did that in my 30s and 40s and that got lame. So now I'm going to do me for the rest of my life. Look, we are still called to deny yourself, take up your cross daily for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that can't be done if you are not committed to living a life of servitude. The difference is that we now make painstaking care to make sure every single aspect of our servitude has a direct beeline to the feet of Jesus Christ. You get that? If you don't get that, then the rest of this message just ain't going to fly. The difference is that every single act of servitude, you can draw a direct beeline directly to the feet of Christ. So to contrast Martha's posture, let's look at the positives we see in Mary's perspective in loving the Lord your God with all of your heart. And it's really simple here. She is sitting at Jesus' feet in the place of worship. I'm going to get into this in a moment, but something that's a little bit of a tangent that I've wanted to bring up, and I've been looking for a sermon to squeeze it into, and it doesn't really fit here either, but I just feel like I need to say it. So tangent, whoop, we're going to go over here for a minute. There are so many passages where you see somebody who is enamored with the person of Jesus that actually does this. Get this, folks. They fall at the presence of Jesus Christ. You know how many people tell me, oh man, worship was so good this morning, I just wanted to get down on my knees in the presence of, what's stopping you? 
Look at when people encounter God in the Bible. Do you know what they do? They're often like this. Before his face and his holiness. What would stop you from doing it? This is church. If we can't get prostrate before the person of Christ in church, when are we going to do it? And have you ever just been so overcome with a sense of his nearness and awareness of his spirit? You're just like, I just want to drop to my knees because he's so good, and I don't even know why I want to drop to my knees. I just want to raise my hands and shout, hallelujah, do it. Do it. We need participatory. Thank you. Amen. I'm so glad we have Nancy here to give the hallelujahs because I know somebody's listening. So thank you. Let's hear it for this sister. Just breath of fresh air right there, folks. And don't be the person that says, I just wanted to drop to my knees in the presence of Christ. Be the person that drops to your knees in the presence of Christ. That's what you see here in this passage. I'm not saying that all worship is going to be demonstrative, folks. I'm not saying that if you sit there with your hands in your pockets and sing hymns, that you're any less worshiping than the person who's making big demonstrative motions. But there is a place in Scripture for being prostrate at the presence of Jesus. And you're going to see that Mary always seems to take that place. And Jesus not only says here that she's chosen the necessary place. He actually says about her in another passage, what this woman has done will be proclaimed every time the gospel's proclaimed from here until eternity. That's his conclusion about her in John chapter 12. So do you think Jesus cares about our posture and worship? I hope so. So this passage is really similar to another passage found somewhere in the Bible. Turn, turn to John chapter 12, and this will be the passage I use to bring us home and, uh, and finish our sermon this morning. I usually like to camp out in one passage, but there's actually three Marys in the Bible, and all of them play a very big role, so it can be pretty confusing. There's Mary, the mother of Jesus, there's Mary Magdalene, and then there's our Mary here, Mary of Bethany, and it can be confusing when there's three Marys, but nobody argues that the Mary in Luke 10 and the Mary in John 12 are the same Mary. It's something that was held to. I, I've gone back and read commentators from as early as, as Polycarp, John's disciple in the first century, all the way up to modern commentators. And everybody sees these two people in John 12 and Luke 10 as the same person. And guess what? There might not be a ton about Martha, but there's so much about Mary of Bethany in the Bible. And I, I just want to take the lid off of Mary for a second before I bring us home with looking at her heart and too often, Mary gets reduced to, like, women of the Bible series, and there's nothing wrong with those. They're helpful. If I was a woman, I'd want to be encouraged by women in the Bible, too. But, fellas, you should think that Mary rocks, too. Don't make her be some character study for the sisters. You should be looking at her and saying, there is just so much to esteem about her spirit. One commentator said of Mary that there is more about the person of Mary of Bethany than anyone in the New Testament not named Jesus, Peter, or Paul. Do you think the Holy Spirit thought that she was important? So these two passages are about the same woman, and it's going to be helpful to take another look from another text to see the similarities in her posture of worship. So it starts off that there was a Passover. Jesus had just raised Lazarus from the dead. They're making dinner for Jesus again. So these people had hospitality. They love to cook. Martha's serving. She's doing her thing. And Lazarus is reclining at the table. But check out what Mary's doing. Starting in verse 3, Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made pure nard, and anointed the feet of Jesus. Seems like there's something connecting these two things, isn't there? Do you see a, a similarity in the feet of Jesus and the feet of Jesus between these two passages? And she wiped his feet with her hair, 
The house was filled with the fragrance of her perfume, but Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples who was about to betray him, says, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, because he was a thief, and having charge of the money bag, he used it to help himself. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may, be, she may keep it for my day of burial, for that you will always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. So I want to look at the religious response and how Martha responds to her sister in Luke 10 and just show you that there's striking similarities between the two. The first one is judgmentalism. You see Judas and you see the religious elite here judging. They're judging her from the second she walks to the door. They don't like her. They don't like the way that she worships. They don't like the fact that it's so demonstrative. And I think this was the first worship war that ever took place in an evangelical church. And people have been judgmental over worship ever since because they really picked the right application out of this text and nailed it. The second one is unfunism. People that struggle with unfunism are always the ones that love sleeking around in the dark like these guys. They usually like to have little side conversations like, hey, can I tell you this negative stuff about this person that I should be praying for instead of spewing negativity and hatred, followed by insert negative opinion. And man, once you fall into that rut, let me just tell you, it is so hard to get out of it because self-righteousness is the very next step that you take if you haven't taken it already to get there. Another response to her is bitter-ism, just giving you some isms of not responding to worship. They're so bitter that they can't even rejoice over the fact that God is doing an amazing work and changing a life here. And if you read through the various accounts, it says that this woman was a notorious sinner in town before meeting Jesus, but their bitterness kept her from even being able, kept them from being able to rejoice over her new life because it didn't fit into their agenda, which leads me to the next characteristic, my way is better than your way is. Um, it's funny that these, women, these people had such great plans for this woman's stuff, doesn't it? Even though it was her stuff, they saw, thought that she was wrong for not doing what they should, which leads to meanism. Just want to tell these people that suffer from meanism, would you lighten up? You ever just want to grab a mean Christian and be like, what the heck is your problem? Like, does the Holy Spirit just work in you in some bizarre way that makes your face distort up like the bitter beer face commercial, and you're just angry, and that's your fruit of the Spirit, is I'm just going to be foul to everybody that I come across? But I know the Bible, so I can justify it. Get out of here with that. How did people like that become so mean? Like, I want to be the dude that invests the rest of my life just saying, I don't care how much you tithe. I don't care how often you're here. I don't care how much you serve. You're mean. Stop it. Don't make me have that conversation with you. And the last one is phonyism. And their complaining wasn't even real complaining because they didn't care. You think Judas cared about the money being given to the poor? It says right there that the dude was just going to pilfer it anyway. And Jesus actually calls him on it. He's like, look, you're always going to have the poor with you. So go and do something if you're so concerned about the poor. And I love that when people say, we need to do this. We okay, do it. Oh, well, I was just bringing it up so that you would do it. <laughs> if that's you, at least just acknowledge that you're more in line with Judas than Jesus. Go and do something about it if you're concerned. And I want to zero in on Mary's response because it's not just a rebuke here. There's actually a very positive response, and we're going to close with the five uns of worship, and that's that she was unworthy, and she knew it. She lived with a sense of her unworthiness, folks. Who the heck am I that I should even be able to approach 
the feet of the Son of God. The only thing degrading in this passage was not that this woman washed the feet of Jesus with her hair, folks. It's the Son of God allowed himself to be touched by a defiled sinner and to be in the presence of a bunch of hypocrites. But that's how much Jesus loved us. He came and incarnated the flesh so that he could come here and be worshipped by a room full of sinners. She was the only person in the room that wasn't a hypocrite because she actually knew that she was unworthy. This is a strong statement, but I want you to take it in. When you lose a sense of your unworthiness, you will lose a sense of your worship. When you lose a sense of your unworthiness, you will lose your sense of worship. You begin to think that God owes you a comfortable life and that life is, about, is supposed to be about blessings devoid of hardship. I feel like a lot of faithful Christians live like their faithfulness puts God in their indebtedness. I've been so faithful, so God, you owe me a better life than what I've come here with. But when you honestly live out of this sense of who the heck am I? The only thing I deserve is hell. And Jesus Christ ransomed me and gave me new life and set my feet upon a rock and gave me eternity and gave me the spirit of God and gave me a church family to be able to worship with and gave me fellowship to be able to come into and gave me a place where people are common-minded pushing my face towards a cross. When you realize that, there's a whole lot to be grateful for and you don't feel very entitled, do you? Thank you. Unpractical is another un that she came with. There is nothing from an earthly sense that you see as practicality here. And boy, was everybody quick to point that out, weren't they? Hey, that perfume could be sold for 300 days wages. That's a year's salary. That's what Judas is getting at. Minus the Sabbaths. That's why he said 300. They work on a lunar calendar. So he meant 300 minus 52, 352 days. That equals a Jewish year. This could have been sold for 300 days wages, a year's wage. This is valuable. This isn't practical. There's nothing safe about your act of worship. When is the last time that you see safe as being an ideal that God holds up in terms of our worship? The third un that she manifests here is undignified. I mean, what would people think? This woman is just lowering herself like a common prostitute. This is not acceptable behavior, but it reminds us of David's response in 2 Samuel where he just takes off his clothes and he's sitting in his skivvies dancing before the ark with all of his might just getting down. And he's like, you know what? You think that's undignified? I haven't even begun to get undignified in your presence. Man, about to take off my suit jacket for that. <laughs> He says, if, if, you, if you think that's undignified, you're looking at the wrong thing here, folks. You're missing it. The fourth is undeterred. She was going to go for the feet of Jesus regardless of who was going to stop her from the feet of Jesus. And she wasn't going to let any stuffy religious people get in her way. I mean, I can't encourage you enough. Keep your eyes on the feet of Jesus. Too many conversations I have with people in church are about people in church. Oh, these people are getting in the way of this and getting in the way of this. Guess what? They're not in the way if you just keep going. There's a cross right there. I'm looking at it. Don't get in my way. Don't get in my way. You're here to help me. You're here to help me. Whoop. You go like that, and you're undeterred, which leads to the last one, unhindered. And there was nothing that was going to get between her and Christ. And that's my, the biggest point of these texts. All these religious folks are giving all these reasons why she should not be where she is or taking the posture that she has, that she's found herself in. But the words say that Jesus told her she was exactly where she was supposed to be with her life. Guys, anything getting in between you and the feet of Jesus is not aiding you. It is an idol. 
It is breaking the first commandment. It is keeping you from the pleasure that you were created for on this earth, the divine pleasure of being in the presence of Jesus. So when I bring these two passages together and another 25 cents word, synthesize them, can you see how Luke 10 and John 12 are really just two branches of the same tree? Can you see how this woman's heart is just bleeding all over our Bibles? Can you see the priority of Jesus' feet? Can you see the similarities of fleshy fruit of people who miss the feet of Jesus? Is the fruit of each so obvious to you as it is to me when I read these texts? Do you see that each posture stems from the decision to prioritize your place at the feet of Jesus? So as I wrap up this series on foundations, let me just ask you a couple of questions or make a couple of points for our application. The opposite of busy is unbusy, not unengaged. If you're here and you've been burned out and you think that you're going to fight burnout by being unengaged, you will never win that battle and you will never get out of your burnout. The only place to get out of burnout is the feet of Christ. And the place that you find the feet of Christ is in and through the local church of Jesus Christ. Number two, it's your job as a Christian and our job as a church to make everything in our lives and the life of our body have a direct beeline to the feet of Jesus. Number three, we find our identity from being in Jesus, not from what we do for Jesus. Amen to that one? And how many of you are just... If you ever want to do a word study that will just blow your mind, study all of Pauline's usage of the words in Christ throughout all the Pauline epistles. It's the most repeated phrase, phraseology in Paul's language in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. That's where our identity is drawn from, not for Christ, for Christ, for Christ. Number four, according to this passage and according to Jesus, loving the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength is directly proportional to our posture of the primary place at the feet of Jesus. So the importance that you put on the primacy at the feet of Jesus reflects how much we actually love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And all of that concludes that as a church we must come from all that we do must come from prioritizing what Jesus calls the necessary place or what he calls in John 12 the place that will not be taken from her let me pray Jesus thank you so much for the beauty that is inherently found at the foot of your cross God may we fight the urge to define our church by anything but the primary place of intimacy with Jesus. Lord, I pray that as we come and feast on you and we partake of your blood and we eat of your flesh, that we remember the words that you said, the church is really about, if you don't eat my flesh or drink my blood, you have no part of me. Lord, we thank you that we have a part in you, we have a part of you, and we're reminded of that as we reflect on what you did at the cross. In Jesus' name, amen.